I remember when he was picked and, you know, I, I remember saying, look, I think his numbers will eclipse uh, what Stephon Diggs had in this offense the previous year. I just think he's going to fit beautifully in there and he's ready made, ready to go. Of all the draft analysts, I was probably the most surprised. It should have been a no-brainer. He should have been a top 10 selection, probably a top five overall pick because of how valuable the wide receiver spot is. What is going on, Vikings fans? It's Chris Corso here, and this is episode number 78 of the Minnesota Vikings podcast. Today I am joined by Vikings team reporter Eric Smith, along with producer Jay Nelson. And we have a few things to talk about today as the Vikings have filled two coaching vacancies. Um, Not the one you're thinking of in the offensive coordinator position, but they did fill the special teams coordinator position with somebody in-house and they filled the strength and conditioning coach position, which was left by Mark Uyama, um, as the Vikings did not pick up his contract. That position was filled by somebody out of house. So we will get to that in this episode, as well as Eric Smith put together a really interesting piece on Vikings rookie wide receiver Justin Jefferson. Um, He did his homework, went and spoke to a ton of draft experts, and put together a long form that you can find on vikings.com called The Rise of Justin Jefferson. You'll hear a few of those interviews on today's episode, and we're going to have Eric kind of explain the project, what he's learned, and obviously the most exciting player on the Vikings roster. So um, really, real jam-packed episode today. And then, of course, we did a little preview last week of the Super Bowl, but that's what's on everybody's mind. Super Bowl number 55 in Tampa Bay at Raymond James Stadium as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers become the first ever team to host a Super Bowl at their home stadium as they take on the Kansas City Chiefs. So we will get to all of that. But first, I welcome in Eric Smith, who, Eric, I just want to just start off the show with, I, I really enjoyed the the article you put together on Justin Jefferson. And, and if you could start off the show that way, just telling Vikings fans um, the project that, that you did and and obviously we're getting to it later in the show, but I think it's a great way to start off this episode. Yeah, Chris, I appreciate that, and, and thanks for the good words. Uh, it was definitely a labor of love over the past month or so. I actually thought about this idea during the season. You know, as Jefferson kept going along and along, it's like, man, this guy is incredible, and he's certainly better than the fifth wide receiver taken in the draft. You know, he's outplaying all the other rookies, and I was like, what did people miss on him? How how come he was the fifth receiver taken how come he's more productive? How come he had 1,400 yards, setting records, you know, 88 catches, all, all those numbers that we know about? But I wanted to do kind of a deeper dive on that. So, I, as you said, I talked to a handful of draft experts that evaluated him almost a year ago just to kind of get their take on what they hit on, what they missed on, what surprised them about, about Justin's rookie season. And so, yeah, it turned out really well. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And as you said, it's called The Rise of Justin Jefferson, and you can find it now on Vikings.com. Clearly a, a rise. I mean, breaking Randy Moss's rookie wide receiving yards record, uh, the franchise record in Vikings history. Justin Jefferson did that this season. Pretty amazing. We'll get to that. Um, let's get to the coaching changes and and the two spots that were filled, the Vikings special team coordinator position. And I really want to hone in on this one because Ryan Ficken, who has been with the Vikings for over a decade, um, 14 seasons, special assistant coach, worked with the wide receivers, worked as an assistant special teams coordinator from 2013 until now. 
um, for the legendary Mike Prefer for all those years. Um, he's one of my favorite people at the TCO Performance Center, one of my favorite people in the building, inside, outside of the building. And I'm just really happy um, that he was given this position by head coach Mike Zimmer because we all know that the Vikings special teams unit uh, last season was one of the weaknesses of the team. And Marwan Malouf, his contract was not picked up after being the special teams coordinator for the past couple years, Jay. So why don't you kind of break down? You're, you've been in the building for, for 15 or so years as well. So tell the Vikings fans um, what they're getting in Ryan Ficken at the special teams coordinator position. Yeah, Ficken and I actually started at, at right around the same time. We both came in in 2007. And one of the things that I really loved about this hire was the fact that he's done it the right way. He started off as a special assistant coach and has worked his way through the wide receiver group and eventually to the assistant special teams coordinator position. And um, for me, I'm one that loves to see people that are able to start at the bottom, work their way through it, earn it to, to make sure that they know that they have the right people in place. And the fact that he's been through all the coaching regimes, all of these different situations where he's been able to survive and advance, um, it's been awesome. And I think that one of the, the best things that you saw this week was the fact that when the announcement was formally done, if you saw uh, special teams coordinator Ryan Ficken promoted on Twitter or any of the social media out there, you had past players, current players, Anybody that was associated with it saying congratulations to Ryan Ficken, he's earned it and he's doing it the right way. So to me, it just signals that the front office and the coaching staff got it right and that he's earned this opportunity. And I think for someone who's done everything he's done across the board in the building, I don't think he's going to mess up his shot here. So I think he's going to do everything he can to succeed and to help the special teams department get better than it has been in the last couple of years. I remember a few years ago, I'm pretty close with Ryan and he's been a good friend of mine. Um, a lot of the young coaches in the organization who have rose to the ranks, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you see Kevin Stefanski get a head coaching job. You see Jonathan Gannon, who was our uh, defensive backs assistant. He just became uh, the defensive coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, so you're just seeing some of these young coaches within the Vikings organization take on these big-time roles. And, and at least we got one in-house now in Ryan Ficken because I am so happy that he is not – um, leaving the organization because he had um, his fair share of special teams coordinator interviews throughout his time with the Vikings. So let's kind of run through the numbers a little bit, Eric. I mean, when you look at the punting situation last year, it was not good. 31st in punt return yards, 32nd in yards per punt return, 30th in yards per punt, and gave up two block punts this season. So I mean, where do you start when when you're when you're Ryan Fick and coming into the situation on the punting side? We'll get into some of the other statistics after, but I think there there's definitely some room for improvement. Yeah, there there's definitely room for improvement. There's no arguing against that. Before I get into how Fick how I think Ficken can impact the team on the field, I, I just want to echo what both of you have said and that he is as good a person as there is inside the building and I'm not just saying that because he and I both went to Arizona State. You know, he, he and I are he and I, as Corso said, are, are good friends. And I texted him after it was officially announced, and he just fired up. I, I can tell I can tell Vikings fans that he is fired up to have this job, and he's earned it. As we said, he's been here 14 seasons. He's paid his dues. And Mike Zimmer on KFan the other day said, you know, just the way that he reacts with players, the rapport he has with players. 
that really sold Coach Zimmer on, on why Thicken should finally get the job. But yeah, he has a tall task in front of him. And I think that's a fair question to ask, you know, given the struggles of special teams the last few seasons, Thicken was here for that. And, you know, he wasn't the coordinator. He was the assistant coordinator, but he was obviously here for the last two seasons, you know, with under uh, Marwan Malouf and, and the struggles that the special teams unit had. So, yeah, I'm interested to see kind of what flavor he adds and, and how he kind of makes this unit his own because there are questions about how come a guy was promoted who was here when there were struggles. But I have faith in him, and I think he's going to bring some new ideas to kind of jumpstart that. But there's certainly plenty of, of area to improve. There's the, the punting unit was bad. The punt return unit was bad. Kickoff return hasn't made an impact. We gave up a kickoff return for a touchdown last year. We know about Dan Bailey's struggles. Overall, I mean, there wasn't a worse unit or phase on the team than special teams, obviously, in 2020. And he's going to have big shoes to kind of fill and, and kind of get that on the right track. We brought up the punting first. I'm going to look at the field goals now. As, as Eric mentioned, 32nd in field goal percentage, 68% for Dan Bailey. We know the issues that happened there. And then the kick return, um, we're right in the middle of the pack at 15th. Uh, at kick return yards with 722, 17th with yards per punt return um, this season. I mean, I think, like you said, Eric, he has a big-time relationship connection with a lot of the players. And one that stood out to me was Adam Thielen retweeted um, your story on Vikings.com, Eric, and and said how happy he was for Ryan Ficken. And that stood out to me. Because many of you might not remember, but superstar Adam Thielen was a big-time member of the special teams unit at the beginning of his career. That's when Ryan Ficken was a young coach um, doing what he was doing with that unit. And uh, when you see a player of that uh, magnitude really say that he supports the decision, um, that's definitely something that, that really stands out for Ryan Ficken. Over to the next position, it's the strength and conditioning coach position. It is left by Mark Uyama, um, who spent the last couple of seasons. Uh, his contract was not renewed. Um, coach Zimmer announced that in his end-of-season press conference. So the Vikings go with somebody from the Philadelphia Eagles, Josh Hinkst. Um, he's been the, the head there at this position for the last eight years. And that this one really stood out to me, guys. Uh, Eric, I'll throw this one at you. I don't know a ton about Josh Hinks. Usually these strength and conditioning coaches kind of stay behind the scenes a lot. But their work is still important. I'll say that. Even though they may, maybe aren't in front of the camera every week like a coordinator or a head coach. But they essentially run the off-season program. And we know how tough it was last year with a virtual program and I'm not saying that the virtual program is why so many guys got hurt, but obviously Coach Zimmer in the front office felt like it was just time for a change at that spot, obviously not renewing Mark Uyama's contract. So we'll have to see what impact Josh Hink makes, you know, and, and we might not see that until October, November, and how players kind of withstand the grind of the season. And we have to kind of see what the offseason looks like, right? Because at this point, we still don't know if it's going to be virtual again, if there's going to be some in-person activities. So, you know, like I said, I don't know a ton about Josh Hinks, and we'll just kind of have to see as we go what kind of impact he can make. A registered dietitian and strength and conditioning specialist. Previously, uh, before the Eagles, eight seasons there, he worked for the Jacksonville Jaguars. 
also at the University of Nebraska and the Atlanta Falcons. So he's been pretty much all over the place. So um, that's kind of how you get to the top in the strength and conditioning business. So, Jay, I, I don't know if you have anything else to add, but definitely uh, good to see some change at this coaching position. They all have their own style. They all have their own thing that they like to focus on. I'm sure in the interview process, you know, we were kind of talking to him and other candidates about certain things they want to see in certain areas. Maybe there are certain things that they're seeing consistently get injured. Whatever it is that when they went through the, the vetting process before they did hire here, uh, Josh Hinks, they definitely were asking, you know, what's your flavor? What's your style for this kind of stuff? So it'll be interesting to see what his focus is. It'll be a, a change of pace here. And like Eric said, you know, with, with the uh, offseason program, all that stuff could be completely brand new. And so it will be interesting to cover that this offseason. And uh, hopefully we can kind of give the, the fans a little slice of what's actually happening behind the scenes with him. Uh, definitely a lot to look forward to at that position. Um, but now let's get to uh, the, the topic of the episode, and that is the rise of Justin Jefferson. We covered it at the beginning of the show. I'm really excited um, to hear what Eric has here as, as he talked to just about every big-time draft expert who tracked Justin Jefferson as he was the fifth wide receiver selected in this past year's draft. So take it away, Eric. With the 22nd pick in the 2020 draft, the Minnesota Vikings select Justin Jefferson, wide receiver, LSU. It was almost a year ago that the Vikings took Justin Jefferson with the 22nd overall pick of the 2020 NFL Draft. Even though Jefferson was coming off a stellar 2019 season at LSU and had won a national title, he was the fifth wide receiver taken last spring. Henry Ruggs III went 12th to the Raiders, Jerry Judy was tabbed at number 15 by the Broncos, and Dallas selected CeeDee Lamb at number 17. The Eagles then took Jalen Rager with the 21st pick, one spot before Minnesota happily took Jefferson at 22. We know now that Jefferson wasn't just the best rookie wide receiver in the league, but is also viewed as one of the top overall talents at his position across the NFL. That was evident by his 1,400 receiving yards, a total that was both a Super Bowl-era rookie record and a Vikings single-season record by a rookie. His 88 catches led all rookies, and he tied for second with seven touchdown catches. It's caught by Jefferson at the 32-yard line, so Justin Jefferson has the most receiving yards by a rookie in the history of the National Football League. With all that in mind, I wanted to pick the brains of some of the top draft experts across the football world to find out why Jefferson had such a superb season and what some may have missed on him in their pre-draft evaluations. To do that, I called up a top-notch panel of draft minds, including Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network, Dane Brugler of The Athletic, Jordan Reed of The Draft Network, Chris Trapasso of CBS Sports, and Solomon Wilcox of Pro Football Focus. Here's their take on why Justin Jefferson was such a dynamic force in 2020 and what the future holds for him going forward. So Daniel, we'll start with you. Are you at all surprised with the rookie season that Justin Jefferson had in 2020? You know, the crazy thing is you just listed those numbers and they're astronomical, but I remember when he was picked and, you know, I remember saying, look, I think his numbers will eclipse uh, what Stephon Diggs had in this offense the previous year. I just think he's going to fit beautifully in there and he's ready made, ready to go. I guess maybe the just the amount of, of 
big plays down the field. Um, maybe that would be the surprise. And his yards per catch is indicative of just how dynamic he was over the top. But this is one of the most polished receivers we've seen come out in the last several years. And just an absolute gift uh, to the Minnesota Vikings that he was there uh, when, when, when the pick was up. And, and man, you talk about hitting the ground running. Um, he's already established himself as a you know, top five type receiver in the NFL as a rookie. It's pretty nuts. And Chris, how about you? What did you take away from Jefferson's first season in the NFL? Of all the draft analysts, I was probably the most surprised. I had Justin Jefferson as a late second round talent on my final big board. And I've certainly come to terms with the fact that I need to take the L on this one very early. Normally, with a draft prospect, you want to wait two or three years to really decide whether or not it was a hit or a miss. I'm taking the L very early. What I'm surprised or was surprised the most about what Justin Jefferson did as a rookie, he was able to excel on the outside. I think LSU actually did him somewhat of a disservice in 2019, despite the 111 catches, the 18 touchdowns, nearly 1,600 yards receiving. He was predominantly a slot wide receiver. 93% of his snaps came in the slot. And in most cases, when that is where a receiver is lining up most of the time, it's because the coaching staff and that program sees him only as a slot receiver. With the Vikings this season, he was able to beat press coverage on the outside, which is certainly much more difficult than winning from inside in that slot alignment. So that's what really impressed me and surprised me the most, that he made a seamless transition to the boundary receiver spot and really exploded in those final 14 games for the Vikings. I'd say 1,400 yards is quite the seamless transition, Chris. But, Dane, let me ask you this. What did he specifically do well in 2020 to help him have such a historic season? I think first and foremost, uh, he developed the trust that's required between a quarterback and receiver. And historically, first-year receivers, they have a distinct learning curve because it can be tough to you know get down the timing in a new offense uh, with a new quarterback uh, against better coverage than uh, rookie receivers are used to facing. And when you factor in the loss of practice time, uh, the workouts last summer, the preseason due to COVID, developing that chemistry would theoretically it'll be tougher. And we saw that the first few games with Jefferson as he settled in and uh, you know, you know, kind of got his feet wet. But then he started rattling off these 100-yard receiving games. Uh, so I think part of developing that chemistry is just earning trust from the quarterback, staying on time with your routes, uh, being in the right place at the right time. And I know that just sounds very simple. Uh, and it, it really is a simplistic way to, to put it. But for a rookie receiver, that's tough. Uh, and so uh, being in the right place at the right time and then being reliable as a finisher. He had only two drops this year uh, with the route running, with his hands. Cousins quickly trusted Jefferson, and I think that manifested itself in the stat sheet. Jordan, I know you were high on Jefferson coming out, too. You hear Dane talk about his hands and his route running. How about you? What about that aspect of Jefferson's game did you like as a rookie? Well, I think just the his natural maturation as a route runner. I think that's something that really stood out about him, and that's something that he was labeled as coming into the pre-draft process of how just how seasoned he was as a route runner. And a lot of times you see – with these, with these receivers coming into the draft and these offensive systems, they're not really exposed to what I like to call a lot of branches on the route tree. So you get certain branches on the tree that they're running, whether it's uh, quick routes out on the perimeter or they have so many manufactured touches that they don't really get a lot of exposure 
to a lot of different routes on the college level just because of how these offenses are ran nowadays. Everything is up-tempo and getting the ball in receiver's hands as quickly as possible. But at LSU, he played in that pro-style system with Joe Brady and some of the other offensive minds there where he was already running a lot of the routes that he was going to be asked to on the next level. So his route running and then his hands. I think uh, I think it was the Titans game of where I think that's the game that Kirk really started to develop some trust with him. And I think I think it was the Tennessee game where he had a breakout game for the most part, and it really followed after that. So after that point, I mean, he was just absolutely lights out. Now, I know all of you put extensive work into your pre-draft profile and go through hundreds of prospects each spring. But if we take a trip down memory lane, Dane, if you look back now, what did you hit on with Jefferson in your pre-draft report? Well, when I studied Jefferson at LSU, there were two main takeaways that I just loved about his game. First is crafty footwork. Uh, he was so savvy as a route runner, uh, creating his own separation, and he did it in different ways. Uh, you know, using hesitation, using body language, uh, mixing his gears. I mean, he was not a one-trick pony out there. Uh, and then second, his ball skills. He's very skilled at squaring his body to the ball, attacking with his hands. Uh, the competitiveness that he shows at the catch point, uh, that allows him to work the middle of the field, win in contested situations. And you know what? I was taught a long time ago when I got started in this business uh, by uh, some of my scouting mentors that when you evaluate the wide receiver position, don't overthink it. It comes down to two qualities. Can you get open and can you finish catches? And Jefferson did both of those things at a high level in the SEC. And so it's no surprise that that's been able to translate. He's been able to do some of the same things in the NFL. And Solomon, how about you? What skills did you have noted on Jefferson that you knew he'd bring to the NFL? Fluid route runner, okay? Somebody who could separate at the top of his routes. A guy who could create yards after the catch. So even in tight coverage, um, once he had the ball in his hands, he could even be more explosive separating from coverage after the ball was in his hands. Um, so he's a fluid route runner. Had excellent feet at the top of his route to be able to separate. And then he had high awareness against zone coverages. No matter what kind of zone coverage you could throw at him, he had a good feel for those zone coverages and knew where the openings would be to put him in sync with the quarterback, whether it was Joe Burrow at LSU or Kirk Cousins with the Minnesota Vikings. So those things are going to make you immediately successful. And successful he was. But let's talk about the flip side of those pre-draft reports. Daniel, did you admittedly miss on anything with him? Yeah, I mean, probably just the more the, the explosive plays, you know, like we were talking about. You know, I did not know that he was, you know, the yards per catch would be where it was, the amount of, of over-the-top plays that he made. I thought he would just wear people out underneath an inter intermediate. Um, but what he did with the ball in his hands after the catch and then really just getting on top of coverage, I think that was probably the maybe the unexpected uh, part of his game. And Chris, you said earlier that you weren't as high on Jefferson as other draft experts. Where did you have him ranked as the 2020 draft rolled around? I think I had him as like my wide receiver number 12. I loved the wide receiver class. And again, that's a lot lower than anyone else had him because like I said, I thought he was a slot only receiver. They schemed a lot of his production. That LSU offense was very run pass option based. They used him on a lot of bubble screens. And then this deep over route that was kind of a schemed play. The two outside receivers would run down the field. There would be a huge void in the zone. A lot of his production seemed like it was schemed. And to me, that said, they're worried about his ability to create separation. So they need to scheme him the football. Like I said, too, 
after the catch and contested catch situations, I liked him. That's why I still had him as a second-round pick. But he showed in his rookie season in Minnesota that he can win on his individual talent alone, beating press at the line, creating separation, and then picking up those valuable yards after the catch. Thanks to all of you for taking some time to chat about Jefferson, and we'll wrap up with this final question. If you look into your crystal ball, what do you expect from Jefferson in 2021 and beyond? And Daniel, we'll start with you. Well, he's going to continue to be a high-volume guy. Um, you know, I, I think he's just getting started here. When you look at guys that are consistently putting up those type of numbers year over year, he fits into that class. You know, you think about Michael Thomas, and when he's been healthy, the numbers he's put up. Um, Justin's a faster kind of version of him. He's not quite as physically strong as, as Mike, but again, that's somebody who puts up high volume numbers. You know, I see Keenan Allen every week doing the charger games understands how to get open and just has a natural feel for it. When Keenan Allen's out there and healthy, he's going to catch a million balls. You just get the feeling that Justin's going to be one of those guys year after year after year. Devontae Adams is another one. You're just going to see this production continue to roll. I mean, the guy's what, 22 years old. Uh, he's just getting started. Jordan, how about you? Any predictions for Jefferson going forward? Yeah, so Adam Thielen is getting a little bit older, but we we all know he's a really good player as well. I think Jefferson's going to continue to be that number one and eventually become that number one wide receiver for the Vikings. We'll see who they end up hiring as the offensive coordinator, but I think he's a guy that definitely can step into any type of offense and have success just because, once again, going back to those translatable traits, he has those traits that can carry over into any offense. So I think there's a lot of all-pro seasons for him in the future. And Chris, I'm going to give you the last word here. Now is your chance to make a bold statement on the potential offensive rookie of the year. Well, first off, Justin Jefferson should have been the first wide receiver picked in the 2020 draft. I mean, there was so much hype around the Alabama receivers, Jerry Judy, um, Henry Ruggs, who was the first one that was actually selected. There was Jalen Rager, all the receivers picked in front of him. I mean, looking at it now, it should have been a no-brainer. He should have been a top 10 selection, probably a top five overall pick because of how valuable the wide receiver spot is. And because for a lot of the points that I uh, have already laid out, and many of which were the reasons I was wrong on him, he's not just a separation-based wide receiver. He's not just someone who can't get open, but he's good in those rebounding situations. Uh, he really checks all the boxes for a modern-day wide receiver. I think he's on the fast track to not just being a star, which he already is, but being a superstar and ushering in a new era of these young wide receivers that really have the complete skill set. A big thanks to Daniel Jeremiah, Dane Brugler, Jordan Reed, Chris Trapasso, and Solomon Wilcott for their incredible insight on Justin Jefferson. We can't wait to see what the future holds for number 18 in purple. I'm Vikings team reporter Eric Smith. Thanks for listening and skull. All right. Thank you, Eric. It's always interesting to get the breakdown from the experts. And you just heard Daniel Jeremiah was so high on Justin Jefferson. And like, that's a name that when he says, when he makes a statement, like he's already better than Stefan Diggs, which is what he said uh, the night he was drafted that, I mean, I, I remember that to this day and for you to get some more insight um, from him and, and a few others there in, the, in that piece, I, it was really cool stuff. And, and I would, Again, tell Vikings fans to go to Vikings.com. It's featured on the website. Uh, go check it out. It's really good reporting by Eric. But, um, Eric, just give us some closing thoughts on on the piece and, and what it meant and and just what you learned throughout the process. Yeah, well, first off, I was pretty happy with how it turned out. And, you know, even though my name is on it, there were a lot of people in VEN behind the scenes that also helped out. So kudos to, to both of you as well for your help with that. But 
I thought it was really interesting stuff because a lot of times guys get drafted, they start their NFL career, and then you don't hear from those draft experts again because they've moved on to the 2021 draft or the ensuing drafts that come. And like I said earlier, as Jefferson went along in his rookie season and just was killing it, I mean, 100-yard games and, and passing Randy Moss, passing Anquan Bolden, I'm like, you know, this guy is incredible. And it's not every year that you get a rookie season like this. And so I knew probably about week 12 or 13 that I really wanted to do something this offseason that, that highlighted him. And I thought, why not take a look back at five, you know, heavy hitter draft experts and kind of get their take on what he did well, what he didn't do well, and kind of parlay that into where he is now, you know, almost a year later after being drafted. So yeah, I thought that Daniel Jeremiah's comments were really eye-opening. Of course, though, like you said, he was just so pumped for the Viking to draft him at 22. But the person who I probably took away the most from, even though he was low on Jefferson, as you heard in that piece, was Chris DePasso of CBS Sports. And not to rag or bag on Chris or anything, but he had Jefferson as his number 12 wide receiver going into the draft and had him as a late second round talent. And that's in any other year, that's not bad to be a late second round talent. But Chris admitted, hey, I got to take the L on this because I was wrong. And I really enjoyed his honesty, but also listening to why he why he was wrong and, and why he admitted, okay, this is where I missed on him. And even though Chris was the most vocal in admitting that, I'm sure there are a lot of other people who missed on him too because, first off, no one could have seen this coming. No one really projected 1,400 yards. If they did, he would have been a top three pick. But for the production, man, like, which is incredible. So I enjoyed all five of those guys' comments and insight, and hopefully it gave Vikings fans a better deep dive into what made him so good, more so than just the 88 catches, 1,400 yards, and seven touchdowns. Really good work on that piece, Eric. And, and I mean, it brought me back to draft night. And I'm going to throw it out here on this podcast. I was a low-key LSU guy throughout that college season, and I watched what that offense did and 18 touchdowns, I believe, is what he had um, with Joe Burrow at quarterback. And when when the Eagles were on the clock, I will literally never forget that I thought that he was going to go to the Eagles and we were going to end up with Jalen Rager, uh, who I was not at all high on compared to I'm, – I'm a big-name kind of guy, Jay. I like watching – Shocking. The, I like watching the LSU Tigers just absolutely dominate teams – and that wide receiver was the one that I wanted. I didn't think there was any way that he would drop to our pick. But you could see it in um, some of the content that the Vikings.com, our crew, uh, the VEN, put together on the voyage. Uh, the Vikings coaching staff was elated that it was the Eagles who took Jalen Rager instead of Justin Jefferson. And the fact that, that it's the Eagles makes it even better because we don't like the Eagles at all, Jay. I know with you, you're probably swapping your LSU jersey for your Knicks jersey, for your Yankees jersey, for whatever other big-time front-runner team you want to jump on here, buddy. No, it's it, it, it was awesome. It was fortuitous that we were able to be able to pick him. And, you know, it's it's – Hindsight is twenty twenty, but man, I think there are a whole lot of teams that were would love to have been able to grab him at that pick. And um, it's just kind of funny to me that when you start looking at how long he fell in the draft and where he fell, and then he started breaking Randy Moss's records where Randy was in a similar boat where he fell to later in the draft long, longer than he should have. 
there's a whole lot of history where people are looking at Vikings wide receivers saying, man, I don't know how he fell that far, but uh, we're sure as heck glad that, that we were able to get him. So as long as we can keep him in purple for his entire career, I will be a very, very happy man. And it's going to be fun to see what he can do in year two coming off his rookie season and doing what he's done. Because the thing is, with all the production he's had, he's now got a target on his back. And um, between he, Dalvin, Thielen, Irv, all these different playmakers that we've got, there's a lot of weapons here for this new OC to be able to run with. And it'll be fun to see what Justin can do in year two. Yeah, that's for sure. And if there's one thing that Gary Kubiak left the Vikings with, it was drafting Justin Jefferson. Because I remember when the Vikings drafted him, it was Gary who was so excited on the phone. He was the one who talked to him first. Uh, I, I he, he was the one who pretty much put his foot out and said, draft that guy right now. And I am happy. I think we're all happy that, that he did. So um, thank you to Gary Kubiak. And thank you to the Philadelphia Eagles for letting him drop to us and taking Jalen Rieger instead. Let's move on to the final topic of this episode of the Minnesota Vikings podcast. It is the most famous game in the world, the Super Bowl, which is held in Tampa Bay this year. The number one seed Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC take on the number five seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's old versus new. It's Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. I, uh, we talked about it last week. I think if you're the NFL and you're Roger Goodell and you're looking to make whatever money you can on this game following a COVID-riddled season, I think this is the matchup that you are looking for, Eric. I mean, you said it. I mean, it's the GOAT against maybe the potential GOAT. You know, I mean, there, there's no doubting that Tom Brady is the GOAT. And it's going to be a long time before anyone even gets in that conversation because they're going to have to win at least six Super Bowl just to equal him, you know, potentially seven, depending on what happened on Sunday. But if there's anyone who can do it as of right now, doesn't it feel like Patrick Mahomes is that guy? I mean, he's already won one title. He went to an AFC title game the year before and maybe should have been in the Super Bowl. If he wins Sunday and get back-to-back seasons, which hasn't happened since Brady did it with the Patriots, then then the conversation start because at some point, at, at some point, Brady's not going to play anymore. I mean, it could be a few more years, but at some point, he's not going to play anymore, even if he's 50. But Mahomes, if he can get another ring on Sunday and get to two and keep Brady at sixth, then he's only four back. And then it kind of becomes a a large big picture scale of, okay, can he get four more over the rest of his career? And it kind of reminds me of Tiger Woods, you know, a few decades ago of, you know, he got off of such a hot start and he's trying to pass Jack Nicholas's record of of major titles in, in golf. So obviously different sports, but that's kind of how I equate it. And as a football fan, it's going to be fun to watch to see, A, if Mahomes can get to number two on Sunday, and B, if he can get to Brady's final tally at the end of his career. Brady is six of nine, which is just unbelievable. I can't even – I mean, six Super Bowl rings in nine appearances. If it wasn't for the New York Giants winning two and Philadelphia winning that game at U.S. Uh, US Bank Stadium, which is – I mean, we were all there for. That was one of the most entertaining games I've ever seen in my life. Um, I mean, it's unbelievable what Tom Brady has been able to do. And we will see. I mean, it's his 10th Super Bowl appearance in his 21-year career. It's pretty amazing that he just goes to a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, finds his way to the Super Bowl. Um, But Patrick Mahomes, let's cover that, Jay. Second straight Super Bowl 
in his four-year career. He's the new kid on the block. I mean, at this point, he's he plays like a veteran um, at his age. It's unbelievable what he's been able to do. Obviously, they are the defending champions last year, defeating the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, if you could, you you laid out all these stats here, Jay, what he has been able to do. The thing that stands out to me most, and I'm going to throw my stat in there as well, 30-plus points for this Chiefs offense um, in playoff games uh, averaged uh, for Patrick, led by Patrick Mahomes. I, I think that's just unbelievable that they average over 30 points in playoff games with a quarterback of his age. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's it's the the old goat versus new goat, right? The, like Eric said, like we're we're sitting in a, a position right now where you're wondering how long is Tom going to do this, but you've got a Patrick Mahomes who wins a title last year, and you know who knows? Maybe the reason why Tom got out of the AVC. He was looking at it saying, I got to go another route because I got this guy standing in my way with this team and the Chiefs that have just a, a boatload of playmakers. I think Tom, having done this over and over and over again in his career for literally almost half of his career, having been in Super Bowls, which is just bananas, I think Tom, the moment's not going to be too big for him, but the fact that they're at home also helps give them a little bit of an edge. And I so... Patrick Mahomes is going to have to do what he's done all season, and that is run up the score. It's kind of crazy when you look back at some of those games. The majority of the first quarter, they haven't really done a ton as far as scoring-wise. But when it gets to the second quarter and from that point forward, they put the the pedal down and they do not stop. And they just keep running points after points after points. And one of the things that they do the best is they hit the big play over and over and over again. And those explosive plays, they're going to need to do that against that Tampa front that is going to put a ton of pressure on them. And I just feel like Patrick Mahomes, is if he wants to cement himself as the leader of the new era and the leader of the new class of, of, of players and quarterbacks that are in this league, he can completely plant his flag this week and say, I'm coming for you, Tom Brady, for the rest of your career. It's, I mean, it has to literally be in his mind losing that AFC championship game a few years ago when they were so close to beating the New England Patriots in that game. You had to think that they would be back in a situation where Mahomes would have a chance to get his revenge, and here we are. I mean, if you look at the numbers, a passing offense against a passing offense, as Jay said. Chiefs were number one this year in total offensive yards. The Bucks were seven. Total offensive touchdowns, the Bucks were number two. Chiefs were number three. Total passing yards, Chiefs were number one. Bucks were number two. I mean, it just goes on and on when it comes to passing offenses and the stats that these two, these two guys who are absolutely separated in decades of age, um, but they're able to literally have some of the most successful passing offenses in the NFL. Let's go to the defense now, and, and I'm going to throw this at you, Eric. I mean... What do you expect from this Buccaneers defense? They did such a great job at stopping Aaron Rodgers and stopping um, the Green Bay Packers from scoring off of Tom Brady's three interceptions last game. I think that was the key um, to them winning that game. So what do you expect from this defense as they try to combat the offense that we were talking about um, from the Kansas City Chiefs? Yeah, to me, the Buccaneer defensive line is my key matchup, and that's against the Chiefs offensive line. And not really for what Tampa Bay does. We all know that they're good, but kind of on the flip side, the Chiefs offensive tackles are beat up and injured. And starting left tackle, Eric Fisher, I think he tore his Achilles. He's out. Uh, Mitchell Schwartz on the right side, he's an all-pro. He hasn't played for most of the season. He's had a back issue. So 
I believe that former Vikings guard and tackle Mike Rimmers is going to be the starting left tackle on Sunday against Jason Pierre-Paul or whoever they line up over there. You know, they like to rotate guys in and out and move guys all around on the line. So I know the eyes are going to be on the quarterbacks, but I'm going to be kind of be watching in the trenches to see if the Chiefs offensive line can hold up because if they can't and the pressure gets to Mahomes early, then it's going to be tough for the Chiefs offense to go. I'm not saying they're going to shut him out, but kind of what Jay said earlier, I think the Chiefs need to get off to a fast start and score some early points so that it kind of gives them a little bit of breathing room early on because if they get behind and, you know, we all hear that phrase, if the Buck defense can pin their ears back, knowing it's a passing down all the time, and they can really try to get after Mahomes with with that, you know, array of pass rushers, it's going to be tough for the Chiefs offense and Mahomes. So, the Buccaneers have a good defense. There's no doubt the Vikings saw that, obviously, earlier this season. But to me, I'm watching the Buccaneers' defensive line against the banged-up Chiefs' offensive line. That's a good point, Eric, because the the Buccaneers' defensive line has been absolutely outstanding this year. They are the first in the NFL in rushing yards allowed, only 1,200 on the season. First in rushing touchdowns allowed, only 10 on the season. So they clearly are doing something right. And when you talk about all those injuries on the Chiefs' offensive line, I mean, that has to benefit a guy like Jason Pierre-Paul, who was an absolute monster um, last game against Aaron Rodgers. I I am also keying in on that matchup because I think Jason Pierre-Paul is a game-changer. We know he gets up for the big game. Tom Brady knows he gets up for the big game. Um, He's got those Super Bowl rings with the – uh, New York Giants and and the way he's able to step up at this age it's it's pretty amazing um, to 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 watch him at his Super Bowl media availability and and OCU Manure is just calling him up uh, to see that those guys connect there uh, that was one of the viral moments of of the uh, radio row that went on this past week a few other connections to the state of Minnesota Anton Winfield Jr. Uh, It seems like he's going to be active and able to play after missing the game last week. He plays in a Super Bowl in his first year in the NFL. His dad, the longtime Viking and legend, Antoine Winfield Sr., played in the NFL for over a decade and never got to the Super Bowl. So pretty cool storyline there for you Minnesota Gophers fans. And then, of course, Tyler Johnson, who had quite the season for the Minnesota Gophers last year on offense, um, he caught a few big balls last game and and throughout the playoffs um, with Tom Brady. We'll see what he's able to do in this big game. But obviously, the Buccaneers are the first team to host a Super Bowl in their own stadium. Pretty amazing that that is able to happen. And 22,000-plus tickets are being sold for the game, which will definitely provide a different type of environment than, the, than some of these players are used to with, with stadiums that were almost completely empty throughout the season. And you have a little stat from Vivid Seats, Jay. Why don't you throw that out there? Yeah, they were basically saying that their algorithm is pointing out that they believe 78% of the ticket sales are going to be for Bucks fans, which isn't surprising that it's in their home home state, their home stadium. Uh, there was the story that came out with the, the Bucks letting the fans know due to competitive advantage and trying to be as equal as possible, they're not going to be able to fire off the the ship and everything within the stadium. Um, and then on top of that, the uh, the average ticket price this year is close to $12,000 a ticket, which is just insane. Um, in years, like last year's uh, average ticket was around $5,600. But the fact that you have to buy them in pairs and in quads this year in order to try to get these things. So like in that situation, you were talking about 
um, like $28,000 for a set of quad seats that were up in the 300 level, which is nuts. But the craziest number I saw Vivid had was lower end zone. There was a pair of tickets that were going for $147,000 for the pair. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, good Lord. I would rather, insane. I would rather go to the Bahamas or a Disney <laughs> you world. You could buy a house in the Bahamas for <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Point. You could buy a residence, um, at a vacation spot rather than sit in the corner end zone, um, to watch this game. I think it's also pretty interesting, uh, being that my fiance's family is all from the Boston, New England area. Um, Boston is one of the top sales markets for tickets. It seems like those Patriots fans are jumping ship and rooting for their former quarterback. Uh, I, I don't. I wouldn't be able to do that if I was a fan of that team. But just throwing that out there before we go, um, and let's finish up. Obviously, continue to check out all social media platforms for breaking news this offseason, whether it's free agency, the draft, team news. We have it all covered on Vikings.com. Also, make sure to check out Eric's piece on Justin Jefferson. I know I've said it about three times in this episode, but one of the best things that has been done throughout the offseason so far, so we have to throw that out there. Um, Before we go, we have to make our predictions for the Super Bowl. The Chiefs are a a 3.5-point favorite over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so I will start out on this one. I would take um, the Kansas City Chiefs to win this game. I just think... The firepower of this offense, I, I just have to go with them. The 30-plus points per playoff game for this Chiefs offense behind Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs, I got to go with them. I will go to you first, Eric. Who who are you taking and why? I'm going to agree with you, and I'm also going to go with, the, with Kansas City to win. But it's tough because, like you said earlier, Tom Brady has won six titles, and you get you have to think long and hard about picking against Tom Brady, especially in the Super Bowl. But I did. I'm, you know, I I have to go with the Chiefs, and mostly because of what you said too with the offensive firepower, and because the Chiefs have kind of been here before. I know Brady has been here before, but a lot of guys on the Buccaneers have not, and a lot of the players who are on the Chiefs this year were there last year, even when they were down. You know, I think almost 10 points in the fourth quarter, and they rallied to win. And even if you think back about the last two postseasons, they were down 24 nothing to Houston. They came back and won. They were down against Tennessee. They came back and won. Even a few weeks ago, they were down 9 nothing against Buffalo, and they rattled off 21 straight points like it was nothing. And, you know, I just I, – I'm leaning towards Mahomes. You know, Mahomes is, is – uh, a magic man and every time I watch him play I'm just impressed and amazed and it's tough to pick against the goat Tom Brady but like I said earlier if Mahomes can win this one he can pull to within four of Brady and and I think he's going to be really motivated to, to, to do that and uh, yeah I, I was born in Kansas City so I'll go with the I'll be a homer and uh, I'll, I'll go with the Chiefs I love it Jay <laughs> so from the beginning when people are asking going into the playoffs I think it was even week 16 I said, it's hard to go against the chalk on this one with Kansas City and Green Bay being the number one seeds. Obviously, uh, T-Bone was able to get it done over the Packers there at Lambeau for the NFC Championship game. My head says the Chiefs. My heart says the Bucks. I got to go with the Chiefs on this one. Um, earlier, somebody even asked for a number. I said 32 to 27. Part of that, too, was even looking at uh, one of the storylines and the stats was that the last five Super Bowls have come down to a final drive that essentially determined how the outcome of the game hit. So whether they scored or didn't score, 
that was the direct lineage to to how the game finished. So I'm going 32-27 Chiefs. I think it's going to be a high-scoring affair. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Even if Tom doesn't win on this one, he still is on the Mount Rushmore of NFL players. If he gets another one, they're basically going to bronze that thing because there's no way that that you're going to be able to touch him moving forward with seven Super Bowl titles. So I'd love to see Tom get another one, but I think those Chiefs and that offense are way too good. And so I'm going 32-27 Chiefs. You have to think that it's on Patrick Mahomes' mind that if he lets Tom Brady get number seven, it's going to be pretty hard <laughs> for him to catch seven. I think six is a little bit easier for a guy of his magnitude. Who knows what with what Patrick Mahomes can do. Uh, the sky's the limit, obviously, for him uh, with, with what he's been able to do so far. So um, that'll do it for this episode of the Minnesota Vikings podcast. As Gabe Henderson likes to say, we'll keep you up to date with everything you need to know right here on the Minnesota Vikings podcast. Thank you, guys, and have a great week.